0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. We have been for a long time in the gospel according to Mark. We're going to be there again today uh, in Mark chapter 6, but I want to start with two questions. Uh, this particular text for me this week, thinking about it, um, this one really grabs me in a, in a unique way because we see the disciples behaving in a way that uh, I could easily see myself behaving, and yet Mark has something uh, very specific to say about that way of thinking. So the question that I wanna ask is this, does, does it ever feel uh, like God is so distant from you that he's become a stranger, that he's strange to you, or perhaps uh, you feel threatened by him? threatened by a stranger who we know, at least we know to say, loves us and saves us. That's a difficult dilemma to be in. I kind of want to say right off the bat, no way. He's, he's the best. He's purely good. I never feel threatened by him. But consider this. If you were to find out that God had just been elected president of our country, what would you feel? I personally would be very stoked about that. I would say, that is fantastic. Or perhaps had been elected to rule a different country, I think I would start packing my boxes and moving. That would be fantastic. Now, how would you feel if God was going to move in and be your roommate? uh, That's a little bit different, you know. (laughs) That's a little bit different right there. And I think there you can kind of start to get at the heart of Maybe some of the reality that we experience behind the words that we say. What if God was with you in your apartment or in your home day in and day out? I'd be stoked if he was ruling the world. I'm not sure how stoked I'd be if he was my roommate. Well, in Mark 6 this morning, we're going to watch God uh, himself come and sit down with people in a boat. And what happens, I think, is a little bit shocking, but after that shock should come, a great encouragement to us. So that's my goal this morning is to encourage you, with a deeper understanding of Jesus, and then by doing that, I believe you'll have a deeper understanding of God himself. We've been watching this gospel unfold for a while now. We've been watching Mark working with these blue, or not Mark, but Mark telling us the story about some average first century blue collar workers who make this borderline insane decision to follow after Jesus. They choose to follow him. And these weren't just sort of reckless vagrants that were looking for the next big adventure, okay? They're they're established, they see something in Jesus, but Mark tells the story in this interesting way where Jesus seems to be the one choosing them They're also choosing to lay down their old life and follow him. So we see this partnering sort of thing going on. There's something about this Jesus of Nazareth that truly draws them. He speaks with authority, unlike anything they'd ever seen. He has this crowd following him around for all number of different reasons. And we've watched some of those reasons come to light in the way Mark tells the story. There's something about this man. They've devoted themselves to him, and then here we are. We'll finish up chapter 6 today, and they still don't know him. That's odd. They're walking and talking with Jesus himself, and yet they're very, very slowly kind of learning who this person really is. So much of, these, uh, much of the text that we've read sort of circulates around this ever-present question, which is, who is this Jesus? And I've suggested to you, that's a far more important question than where do you think you're going when you die? The first and bigger and more important and more profound question is, who do you say Jesus is? And they are clearly still trying to figure that out. Now, in the story that we read last Sunday, this Jesus, this friend of theirs, creates, I think it's reasonable to say, several thousand pounds of food out of thin air, okay? That's pretty cool. Bread and fish, it keeps, a, you know, the menu is short, but he makes a lot of it, and he makes it out of thin air, and then he organizes this chaotic crowd into groups, and he does this most amazing thing. Now, what were the disciples thinking after that? I mean, that's pretty awesome. I would like to say, if I'm there, I would say only God can do something like that. I would believe he was God. They don't yet. Jesus has kind of kept that to himself. What they certainly see is a wonder worker, okay? He's doing something amazing before their eyes. We, I think, in our good church conditioning, many of us, we have the luxury of the New Testament. We can kind of read the whole story, or say, well, yeah, thousands of pounds, thin air. That's got to be Jesus. That's got to be God Himself. But remember, if you're a first-century person back in the day, one of these guys, the the uh, idea of a wandering preacher or a wandering cynic or sage or teacher, prophet-like person, with a group of disciples going from town to town, whether trying to start a movement or trying to earn money or whatever, all this was very normal. Jesus, by virtue of having disciples and working wonders, in and of itself was not that amazing. So they're still kind of grouping him up in this place of he's one of those guys, and yet Mark has teased us to say it is like that, but it's so much more. We're figuring out what's going on here. For us today, we... We might see the divinity in Jesus that they didn't. And we might say to the question, well, who is this Jesus? We might say, well, he's God. Jesus is God. That's the answer. But it begs another question, doesn't it? Who is God? What is the nature, the character? What kind of person is God? What kind of being is he? So as soon as we answer that question, we're still begging another question, and I think this will be some of what's happening in the boat scene that we'll read today. If God is a spiritual stranger to us, then Jesus just becomes a human stranger and a spiritual stranger as well. Who is God? How do we view him? What is our impression of him? How would you feel if he came and sat down right next to you now and put his arm around you? Would that be a peaceful moment of total embrace? Or would you say, "Mm." you know, the divine, sovereign, holy creator of all the cosmos sits down, puts his arm around you. There's a little picture in how we view God. It's interesting, Pastor Daniel and I were talking about this this week, he made a great point. He said, it's amazing how you can can be totally amazed by God. You can be taken aback by the, the miraculous work that He does, His great salvation. You can be shocked by how awesome this God is and still not know Him. You can still be a person who doesn't know God. In the New Testament, I think it seems to own the fact that we human beings, hard as we try, we still don't get it so often. We don't understand God. Our broken thinking, our incessant sense of personal shame, it hardens our heart and calluses our mind, clouds us. So God helps us in the New Testament, I think, and he says to us, if you want to know me for real, you need to start really looking at Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. That's in Hebrews 1. Look at Jesus and you're looking at the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus doesn't just show us what God does. That's what I love to talk about and think about. What God has done, what he's doing, what he will do, what is God doing? That's much of our conversation, isn't it? What's he doing in your life? What's he doing in our church? What's he doing in the city? All that stuff. How often are we saying, who is he? What is his character, his nature? What kind of person is he? New Testament would say, turn your face to Jesus, and you're going to get a pretty clear picture of knowing what kind of God this is. So I want to watch this story unfold even more. Please turn to Mark 6. We'll be in the end. We'll pick it up in verse 45. And as we finish Mark 6 today, we get to watch two scenes, actually. We'll just touch on the last one at the end. Two scenes where people encounter the divine God in the flesh. And we can learn from the ways that they react to Jesus and we can learn from the ways uh, that he reacts to them. So read with me. We'll read the story through, and then we'll go back and try to pull it apart a little bit. Mark 6, 45. Pay close attention to, to what Mark will identify as the source of their confusion, okay? Mark 6, 45. Immediately, so this is same day, Right after the feeding miracle and all of that, probably we learned in that miracle that the sun was kind of setting. So right, as, right at the end of the day there, after the bread and the fish, uh, immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He goes up there alone. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, treacherously. He saw that they were barely making headway is the idea, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking out on the sea, And he was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart or take courage. I am. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded or astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Now, that's a bit odd. Hard hearts. Here the disciples have hard hearts. This is the language for the evil sort of criminal tyrants like Pharaoh, isn't it? That's why I see hard hearts. I immediately think Pharaoh. He had a hard heart. Even earlier in Mark's own writing, we have seen where he identifies hard-heartedness in the crowds that are out there, not the inner circle of Jesus' people or those who are inquiring about Jesus, but it's the hard-heartedness is a description reserved for those outside, who aren't listening, who don't care. They're not paying attention. They have hard hearts. They can't understand the parables. We've seen that. But now that hard-heartedness moves from wicked, evil tyrant, or just person who doesn't care, crowd at large, now on to Jesus's own inner circle, his closest people. And Mark calls them hard-hearted they still don't really know him, and I think that's odd, and yet I think it's strangely sort of eerily familiar to the modern Christian, not really understanding Jesus, not knowing him. So let's look more closely at this confusion that seems to be growing around Jesus. There's a, there's a lot of confusion here that's building around him, and it seems like neither the disciples nor the crowds are picking it up. Jesus is leaving some big clues, and people are not quite getting it. It's almost like they're thinking that God has miraculously provided bread so that they would have bread, instead of God provided bread so that they would know God. That's interesting, isn't it? God provides for us, is it just so we would have provision? Or does He provide for us for a much greater purpose? So let's go back to it. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Then he dismissed the crowd, and then after leaving them, the crowd, he goes up on a mountainside to pray. Why send the disciples out ahead of him? That's a little bit odd, isn't it? Mark writes very tersely, so he doesn't really tell us. He just says that it happens. John records the same story, and he kind of helps us understand a little bit more about it. These crowds, if you remember in John's telling of the story, at the end of the feeding miracle, they say, Whoa, ho, ho! you should be our king. That would be awesome. And if we're, if we're too quick to interpret that, we might say, Oh, good. They're respecting him the way that they should. He is the true king. But in the context, we remember... There are already five governing tetrarchs, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, the different rulers, and they're tied with Rome. You throw down a, hey, we don't respect you, emperor, we respect the king, that's, (laughs) you know, that's no small peanuts. That's a major kind of flipping off the empire. We don't care about you. We have our own king, and he's powerful, and why would they want him to be the king? He has demonstrated an uncanny ability to draw huge crowds, to get people stoked, and he has power and authority. Man, this guy would be the perfect guy to get done what we want to get done, take our country back. And that's exactly what they want to do. They're not interested in this Roman occupation. So they say, be the king. You see there, John sort of tipping his hand to say... This pretty hostile crowd. Up in northern Galilee, which is where this takes place, you have just kind of this hotbed of rebellion. And so Jesus is probably, most likely, looking at this crowd. They want him to be the king. And, and he's looking at this sort of growing excitement. He says, disciples, you guys got to roll out now. I suspect he just doesn't want them to get swept up in the flurry. Then he calms the crowd down, and then he pieces out, and he says, I'll meet you guys later. I'm going up on the mountain. It's very interesting. Right in that little scene, you get a little picture, especially if you're looking at the way John tells it. You get a little another little answer to our question, who is this Jesus, or who is God? He is apparently not the kind of ruler that rules by forcing people to do his will through law. That's what they want. They want a king who will establish new law, new power, new rule, and force these idiots to do what they're supposed to do. God doesn't seem to want to even enter into that kind of kingship. Is he the king of the cosmos? Yeah. But not that way. He's going to reinvest kingship and authority and rule with a meaning that is unprecedented in the history of mankind. God rules in a way that is very different than our president or any earthly king. And so we're invited right off the bat to say, hmm, okay, who is this Jesus? Well, he's not the guy. We already saw him tempted in the temptation story. Hey, if you do this, you could be the king. Jesus says, "Mm mm-mm, not interested, bub, I'm out. I'm not doing that kind of stuff. I don't care how much you want me to. I think you can meditate on that for a really long time to get a little picture into what kind of God this is. Well, here he is. It's at the fourth watch. He's sitting on the slope of a mountain. You know, it says mountain. You've got to think something more like Rocky Butte and then kind of stretched around a lakeshore. This is a nice gentle slope. It's not like Mount Hood. Okay, so he's up on the mountain. It's the fourth watch. The Jewish night goes from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., Three three-hour blocks are the watches. So if it's the fourth watch, then this is three to 6 a.m. Well, pretty early in the morning. Later that night, verse 47, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. And he saw the disciples straining. It says they were tortured by the oars. They're straining. they're trying to get somewhere because the wind is against them. And shortly before dawn, he goes out to them walking on the lake. Now, if you've grown up like me in church cultures and atmospheres in some way, the walking on the water may be a little bit like, yeah, I know he did that. You got to just soak on that for a little bit. I mean, that is phenomenal. He's walking out on the top of the water. Away he goes. It's interesting. Here he is. He sees his disciples. They're disconnected from him, aren't they? Three times in Mark. This a whole, the whole story is about the disciples and Jesus together doing their thing. But there's three times where the disciples are apart from Jesus, and every time they have problems. You just tuck that away in your head a little bit. More interesting, I think, is when we think about the pressure that Jesus was under at this moment. You've got to kind of sit there on the slope with him. Remember, he's a real man doing real ministry with real guys, and they're in a real context. So what is he dealing with right now? Well, I've just suggested that he is dealing with a crowd and a growing movement, if you will, that if he doesn't nip it quick, this could quickly and easily turn into a rebellion, which is gonna absolutely work against everything he's trying to do. And he feels it. Calm down, guys, disciples, get out of here. You know, you can kind of see Jesus like, oh my goodness, i got to manage these people. So there's the potential for a rebellion to grow. You have an ongoing hostility, we've seen it all throughout, hostility from the religious power brokers of his day. They don't like him, they don't like what he's saying, they don't want him in the tabernacle, so he's got the religious people from his own people don't like him. Then he's got crazy people in charge, like Herod, chopping people's heads off, and we talked about that already. We won't go back into it. But certainly that's a threat. I mean, where he is sitting is just a few miles around the lakeshore over to Tiberias, which is where Herod is ruling. Think of what pressure Jesus is under here. It's pretty intense, yeah? And so what does he do? Well, he says, I got to get it alone. I need some one-on-one time with the Father. I'm going to get up on the hillside to pray. There you see a little character of Jesus. He knows what he needs. He goes after it. He needs to be with God. So he steps out. And this is not the only time you see him doing that kind of thing. Now here he is up on the mountainside getting that alone time with the Father, under real pressure, experiencing genuine pain, I believe suffering, as he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And then we see him do something very interesting, doesn't he? Right in the midst of all of that, he notices that his friends are in need. And one of our elders here, Norm Cook, has a great saying. That's fantastic. He says, Christians are like bags of tea. You never know what you're going to get till you put them in some hot water. That's good, you know? Here Jesus is sitting in some hot water. Let's see how he operates. He's in some really hot water. And immediately when he sees his friends in trouble, he stops praying and he goes to action. He gets up, he walks down, he walks across the water, and he helps them. That is the divine cosmic king of the universe in the flesh with a few guys in a boat. And he says, I love these guys, I'm going to go help them. Who is this Jesus? Well, that's another little picture on the nature of God. He's got lots of his own things to do, and he sets them aside and pursues his beloved. That's beautiful. He is apparently the kind of person, the kind of being, who is interested in helping people make progress. Notice, the disciples are not, at least Mark doesn't suggest that this storm is really threatening their lives like the last one. This one is just, they can't get anywhere. They're not making progress. Jesus comes down to help them make progress. In their hour of need, he's there to help. Selfless, courageous, treating them like his beloved. That's pretty awesome. His friends need him and he must go. He wants to help them. I confess that my thinking about God has been far more focused on how disappointed He must be with me than on how much He wants to help me progress in this life. If I'm going to be totally flat honest, when I contemplate God and my relationship to Him, it's just just knee-jerk. It's just an instinct. I immediately go to... I'm sure he's bummed with me. I'm I'm glad that he forgives me. I'm thankful I need a ton of that. But that's just where my head goes. My shame before a holy God. My guilt before a perfect being. How unworthy I am. I've been taught to think that way. I've been educated to believe that that's a proper posture. Shame, self-loathing. I think we do take sin seriously, but when it becomes an identity piece, we may be in big trouble. Do we exist as God's beloved or as the shameful ones that thankfully God will tolerate? Shortly before dawn, he goes out to them, walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by when they saw him walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost. They cry out, Notice they're not like, hey, ghost, come on over, we got a seat, come here. No, they cry out in terror. <laughs> you know, they're freaking out. They saw him and they're terrified. And he comes to them and he says the most profound thing. This is where it gets really cool. He says, take heart or have courage. And he says, egoe me, I am. That's a big statement in the Bible. I am. We translate it, it it is I, or I am he, something like that. But he just says those two words, I, and then the being verb, I am. Don't be afraid. That's an amazing statement, too. The Bible knows how we think about God. There's over 300 and many, 300 and some times in the Bible where it says, when somebody's engaging with God and he says, don't be afraid. I mean, that's a lot. We're, we constantly feel afraid of God. And he says, not good. <laughs> you should be, you shameful fool. No, he doesn't say that. He says, don't. You don't have reason to be afraid of me. You shouldn't be afraid of me. I would make a great roommate. Wow, I think this kind of story is familiar, this boat scene, okay? So if, we've been, if you've been here for the Mark series, you're like, well, we've been in a boat before. It's just the same. It's a different story. But let's look first at the similarities, and then more interesting are the differences. Here's what's similar. Previously, they were crossing the same lake at night, okay, in the dark. Previously, there was a big strong wind, a mighty gale that came up. Previously, the disciples were terrified. They're also terrified now. Mark uses the same exact phrase that he used back then, and I think it's chapter 4, that he's using now. Same phrase where he says that the wind grew weary, or the wind sank down, or it died out, it became calm. Same exact phrase. And the disciples have the same reaction as they did then. They're absolutely scared, they're terrified, they're astonished. There's a lot of similarities, but notice the differences. I think we get a really interesting picture in what's going on at this time. We've mentioned this. The disciples are alone in the boat before Jesus was with them. Here, the walking on the water is the most prominent, memorable part of the story. Back then, the most memorable part was that he was able to still the storm, okay, Here he comes to them as a mysterious, kind of frightening other, as a pneuma or a a ghost. Whereas previously, he was, um, as I've said, he was already with them, but the the goal there was to wake him up, to get him engaged with what was going on. And in the other story, the disciples end very differently. Remember, the ending is, who is this man? who can control the wind and the waves, you know? Who has the authority over these things? They're kind of impressed by Jesus. They're like, whoa, wow, that's interesting. Here the tone is just terror. We're afraid of him. And then we have that surprisingly negative conclusion from Mark, which is they had hard hearts. They don't get it because they're hard-hearted. Hard hearts is that idea that I automatically associate with awful sinners (laughs) you know if you have a hard heart you're an awful sinner i think of that rebellious i said i mentioned pharaoh hard heart stuff happens to to people who are just the worst but we have not seen mark talking about the disciples as though they're just the worst honest men whatever they have their struggles and their dullness and doubts and failures but He's not describing them in negative light, by and large, not like the other hard-hearted folks. I have no problem whatsoever seeing myself in the boat just like one of the disciples, don't you? You kind of have this sort of like, well, geez, Mark, calm down a little bit. I mean, what are you going to do? You're out in a boat, it's three o'clock in the morning, you know, and there's a guy walking across. Of course you're going to be terrified, That seems to make sense, you know, but Mark doesn't want us to look at that and and say, hmm, yeah, this makes sense. We should be there. He wants us to see something important. They don't recognize Jesus and they don't understand who he is for real, not because of an average sort of understandable confusion, but because their hearts were hardened and they didn't understand what the bread miracle was all about. Now, notice in the Jewish mind, we, when, we, when we think of the seat of knowledge and understanding, we think of our brains. In the Jewish mindset, it's your heart. So when they talk about a hardened heart, they're talking about a dysfunctional way of understanding and thinking. That kind of opens the door a little bit for us to see, do I have a similarly hard heart, even though I can say I'm not like Pharaoh, you know, committing genocide and freaking out. I maybe still have a dysfunctional way of thinking. Their thinking and understanding doesn't make sense, and I think this is why. It's the same for all of us. Their experiences in life and within the religious community had not prepared them to recognize Jesus' nature and to be at peace with Him. Instead, they had been conditioned to react just as they do, which is in terror. When Jesus says, I am, it is I, they are experiencing, I believe, a true theophany. It's where mankind is looking at God. This will happen at other parts in the story. You remember when Jesus says, I am, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers are looking for him, and he says, they say, we're looking for Jesus. He says, I am, and they all fall to the ground, you know? You would think they'd be like, oh, good, get the handcuffs on him." We found him. No, they fall to the ground in terror. It's a theophany. Moses, at the burning bush, walks up to the burning bush. He says, What's going on here? And what does God say? I am who I am. Moses is a theophany moment. He's in the presence of the divine. So it's a really, really big moment. Notice how Mark has tied us in to remember Moses as well. When Moses was really seeking the character of God, what did God do? He said, get in the cleft of that rock and I will pass by you. Mark picks up that language and he says, here comes Jesus walking on the water to pass by them. And he says the same thing God did to Moses, I am. You see, he's tying us into that, even in the Old Testament, the only being that can walk on water is God himself. So when these disciples are in the boat and they see this and then he says that, They are brought to this moment of saying, God is is sitting in the pew with us, and he has his arm, and they do what I think most of us would do, which is they freak out in terror. But Mark is not telling us, hey, Christians in Portland, notice how these disciples reacted that way, and that's a legitimate way for you to feel as well. Mark's not trying to comfort us in that, he's trying to correct that. Instead, he says, hey, Christians in Portland, if you're like these disciples and you believe that keeping some distance between you and God is good because he's pretty terrifying, this is because you don't know him yet. And this is because your heart has become hard in the sense that your thinking has grown dysfunctional based on your experience of growing up in this world, like all people. That's just what happens to all people. Right when I hear that, I have this robust sense of shame that comes in and it's like, yes, I am. I am I am the worst, and I need to start to change that. I got to do, oh, I, thank you. You've pointed out once again how, how bad I am. But that's not what the New Testament is trying to do. It's certainly not Mark's deal here. He's saying to us that our experiences of life, so... Your moms and your dads are guardians, aunts and uncles and family. The television shows and movies and books and things you watch and see and participate in, our educations, our schools, everything around us calluses us and it hardens our hearts or breaks our thinking. Just like the disciples. I know they weren't watching Netflix but their world crafted for them both religious world and non, crafted for them an impression of God and his nature that isn't uh, isn't accurate. Had their hearts been functional, I like to think this, if they had had a functional heart, not calloused through the life experiences we all go through, I think Mark might have written the paragraph this way. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when... They saw him walking on the lake. They knew him and recognized that he was truly God in the flesh, coming to be with them, and they immediately experienced peace. And they were quick to welcome Jesus into their boat because they all saw him and they were thankful. Not terrified, but thankful. Since the Garden of Eden, we have become so ashamed of ourselves Hiding from God. Notice that was the first move, wasn't it? With sin comes a desire to hide. And then what follows is a desire to perform. When you feel shame, one of the best ways to ease that shame is to perform well. And so we're driven to this chained up cyclical way of always trying to perform better. If only I could, I wouldn't feel so much shame I am ashamed, God, you're very distant, and I'm a little bit afraid of you, if not terrified. The idea that God calls us his beloved, it just doesn't compute. It doesn't fit with my understanding of the world. I still have this sin, and I see so much that's wrong with me. I mean, (laughs) I oftentimes think that I know my sin better than God does. Don't you? Like I, I know how bad it is, because when he says all this stuff in the Bible, he wouldn't if he knew where I was at. <laughs> he wouldn't say that. How could God love us? I still have this sin. If I could just control and manage my sin better, then I could be more presentable to God. Sure, yeah, I am amazed by God. I bring a tear to my eye when I think about His great salvation and his sacrifice, and all that he has done. He's big, and authoritative, and he's mighty. We sang these songs even this morning. He's mighty to save, he's awesome. Something about that is overwhelmingly cool to believe, and know, and and understand as truthful. But I'm small, and I'm insignificant, and I'm weak, and I'm really messed up. And really, really good Christians have consistently shown me And I'm one of those foolish, low folks who don't read their Bibles as much as they're supposed to. And I'm ashamed of that. And I should be reading it more. And I should be praying more. And I should be evangelizing more. And I should be kinder to people. And I should be a better parent. And I should be a better employee. And I don't even care about most of the things that I'm told to care about on the news and in my own circles all the time. I can barely hang on in this world. I should be more. I'm not as morally clean as I should be. It's just overwhelming. God is my president, yeah, yeah. But if he were my roommate, he would be very bummed at me, and I would feel most at ease. I could really just kind of be myself in my pajama pants when he was away for the weekend. But when he comes home, I, gotta, I, gotta, I can't be who I am. Not around God. He knows everything. I mean, everything. This is not the kind of God who, if he is really smart, would put my safety and well being and progress in life before his own. God wouldn't do something like that. Isn't it amazing? the way that our own sin creates this pervasive sense of shame in our hearts. And even when we master all of the right things and say all of the right things about God and His loving, saving grace, so many of us still deeply believe that we are disappointing to God, that we should be ashamed of ourselves. I want to say women and men, And children here of Central Bible, that is not our God. He is not bummed with you. He puts you before himself, and he comes running down from that hillside out into the storm to get into the boat with you to help you make progress in this life. And he calls you his beloved. He gives you bread, not so that you can have bread, but so that you can know him and know his nature. He helps you and saves you, not merely so that you can have salvation, but so that you can know him. You can see his nature, what kind of God this is. Now let's look at the, the last little tiny story here. And don't worry, it's just three sentences long. But this will add on to what we're, what we're seeing here. Verse 53 when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. Now, this is over in Gentile country on the other side of the lake. This isn't Jewish country, so they, but they still recognize him right away. And they ran throughout that whole region. They carried the sick in on mats to wherever they heard he was going. Wherever he went, villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces so he could see them. And they begged him to let them touch even the hem of his garment or the edge of his cloak or the tassel, something. They just If they could just touch his clothes, that would be good. <coughs> I want you to notice here. Oh, sorry, I didn't finish. I get ahead of myself. They placed the sick in the marketplaces and they wanted to touch the edge of his cloak and everybody who was able to, you imagine a sick guy laying on a mat and he just slaps the side of that cloak as Jesus passes by. And he's healed of his cancer, or he's healed of his herniated disc, or he's healed of whatever is alien, leprosy or whatever. That's fascinating, isn't it? They were healed. Now, here's what I want to say. Jesus is clearly the focus of attention here, but he's not the one doing the action, if you will. The verbs, the actions are all the people. They're the ones seeking Jesus. He's not going around looking for patients. They're coming to him in droves. And they're turning their faces toward him. You might say, well, why would they be doing that? It's kind of obvious. They've simply heard that he can help them. That he has an intense and wonderful kind of power that can cast out demons and heal all of their diseases. So to them, Jesus is not somebody to be terrified about, just the opposite. So they approach. Now, do they approach because they have repented of their sins? And they are assured of their salvation, and so they can approach him. No, not at all. Is this because they rightly recognize him as the son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one true God in the flesh? Absolutely not. They don't, I mean, I don't know the minds of everybody, but I doubt that they were thinking, hey, this is God. No, their minds are very simple. Is it because they rightly acknowledge that they're sinful and that only Jesus can forgive them, and so they come to him in humility. Not at all. That's not why they're coming to him. They are simply turning their faces toward him and approaching him for healing, and he seems to grant it. Worse than what I just mentioned is the fact that their faith, if you will, in him seems to be pretty primitive and pretty heavily tied to magic. We know from Jesus' life and the way he's been ministering, it's really Jesus who needs to choose to touch you, to heal, and they don't even know that. <laughs> they think they, if they could just get in the proximity of him and just touch the hem of his garment, by golly, that'll be it. So their theology is pretty messed up. Their beliefs are all over the map. None of them are correct. <laughs> I mean, what we say about them, the one thing we can say is none of them have. A clear understanding of who he is, what he's about, or any of the things we hold so dear. All they simply do with what they have, they sit in their brokenness, they see a man who can help them, they turn their face toward Jesus, and he seems to have much more flexible boundaries than even his closest followers. He seems to honor that. No, we don't. It just says that he healed their diseases, doesn't it? But it still is amazing. He receives them and he heals them. And I want to say that this helps us yet again answer that question. Who is this Jesus? Just one chapter before, if you remember the woman, same kind of boat. She comes up and she thinks that just touching his clothes is going to be a huge win. Did Jesus rebuke her and say, what's wrong with you? What are you doing that for? Get away from me. Don't you ever read your Bible? What's the problem? You shouldn't be coming up trying to touch me. You have all the kinds of wrong beliefs, you foolish woman. Be gone. He doesn't say that. He doesn't rebuke her at all. Instead, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He calls her action, which is the same idea. It's the sort of magical, mystical faith in Jesus that if she can just just touch him with her fingertip, by golly, And he honors her. And he says, I'm healing you. And you did that out of faith. That's an amazing import to what we understand faith to be. There's an old saying here at Central Bible that goes all the way back to the very beginning. Have you told Jesus that you love him lately? Many of you who have been here for a long time can remember that. Notice the focus is... Have you acted well? Have you done what you should? I know it's a very good, it's a good statement and well-meaning. But I wonder if we could add another statement that we bring into our culture, which is, have you heard Jesus telling you that he loves you lately? So we can tell him we love him, but we have to listen to Jesus saying, you're my beloved. In your state of hard-hearted inability to think, or believe perfectly in your ongoing sin, in your raw and real and naked shame. He calls you his beloved, and he determines to move you from being a stranger to being a true companion in this life. That's a beautiful thing you can hang on to and be encouraged by. This is Jesus, and therefore this is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's forgiving. He opens himself to you. He chases down to help you progress in this life. He deeply loves you. I want to close with these words from a fellow brother in Christ. His name is Henry Newman. And he's reflecting on some of these same things. And so hear these words. I think they're profound. <coughs> He says, though the experience of being the beloved has never been completely absent from my life, I never claimed it as my core truth. I kept running around it in large or small circles, always looking for someone or something able to convince me of my belovedness. It was as if I kept refusing to hear the voice that speaks from the very depth of my being, And says, you are my beloved on whom my favor rests. Do you remember that? When Jesus is in the scene and God says to him and the spirit comes down, you are my beloved son on whom my favor rests. If we are in Christ and we are living in his life, that's a statement to us as well. We can't deny that. This voice that speaks from the depth of my being and says, You are my beloved, on you my favor rests. That voice has always been there. But it seems that I was much more eager to listen to other, louder voices saying, Prove that you're worth something, do something relevant, spectacular, or powerful. And then you will earn the love that you so desire. Meanwhile, that soft and gentle voice that speaks in the silence and solitude of my heart remained unheard, or at least unconvincing. Beneath all of my seemingly strong self-confidence, there remained in, in me the question. If all of those who shower me with so much attention could see me really and know my innermost self, would they still love me? And that agonizing question rooted in the inner shadow, my inner shadow, kept persecuting me. And it made me run away from the very place where that quiet voice calling me the beloved could be heard. This ferocious and omnipotent, sovereign creator, creator of all of the universe, calls you his beloved. Do not fear him. You can be totally open, 100% honest before him. He'll sit down in that boat with you, and he will help you progress toward him and in this life. And when you feel terrified by him, which you will, and we all do, all through all of human history, through the whole Bible, when you feel terrified by God, turn to Jesus. Turn your face toward him. Go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read about Jesus know who he is live with him know that you're looking at the nature of God himself just as important listen to that quiet voice inside of you inviting you to come after him and calling you his beloved let's pray Father, just just thinking, thinking about you and, and looking at these stories, there's this piece of me, kind of a knee-jerk reaction, which says, Boy, I wish I could, I wish I could see you in the flesh and watch you do these miracles. I think then I would I would be easier for me to understand you or something. And yet I confess, and I think we all do that to know that if you were really here with us and we deeply believed and understood that you were truly the ultimate being, the divine God of all time and history, we would buckle at our knees and be terrified. And I'm so thankful for your word that helps to draw us out of that place. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. And showing us how this world and how our own sinfulness in it has sort of cyclically caused us to live and wallow in this shameful place where we actually don't believe you when you call us your beloved. We don't believe you when you tell us to not be afraid. I confess, and I think I can confess on behalf of all of the believers here and say that so often we don't trust the way that you speak about us. And then we look at you, Jesus, and I see you coming down off that hillside on the north side of Galilee, out onto the water, and saying those words that should be so comforting. You are. You are God, and you are our God. We love you, and we do trust you. I ask that you would help all of the women and the men and the children in this room learn To truly believe that we are your beloved people. Help that to become the core of our identity so that we can always approach you with peace and without fear. You are great and we love you, Jesus. Amen.